Mission impossible. How many of you undertake the mission impossible of catching fish? Anybody do that? Any fishermen, sportsmen? Okay, this is, this is, we're in the southern north woods, I know that. How many of you like to deer hunt? Okay, a few, a few of you there. Uh, we, just, we just talked to somebody yesterday at a store that said that, that um, one of the biggest shocks of their life was when they came into Eau Claire and they saw that cars were driving by with multiple deer on the top of the, top of the car. I guess they had a successful deer hunt. They hadn't seen that before. Well, I haven't seen multiple. I've usually just seen one at a time. But uh, anyway, sportsmen. We live in a, um, an area of the country that loves to do sports, hunting, and fishing. And I don't know how many of you probably have a fish story, but um, most of us probably have at least one fish story if we've done that. Judy and I had a chance three years ago up to, to go up to Petersburg, Alaska and, and go fishing. I'm not much of a fisherman, but Judy's brother is. And uh, he does, he'll go 50, he would go 60 miles off the coast of Washington and they would catch the big ones. Well, we went out just off the coast of Petersburg, Alaska, halibut fishing, and we caught a couple 40-pounders and a 20-pounder. But the fish story wasn't about that. It was about the one that got away. I, I hooked, the, hooked the, the, the fish, and the first, first shock was the, the power pulling it. And of course it pulls it, and it started to pull me over the edge of the boat. And, and I don't know if you've ever had any of that happen to you, but it was not a, a fun experience. I'm trying to get this, and finally after about 10 minutes of wrestling with this thing, I gave it to, to Carl, who's the professional. I said, you need, to, you need to take this thing, because there's no way I'm gonna do this. And of course he just about got pulled in too, so I didn't feel so bad. And within a couple more minutes, the whole setup broke, tore off, hook, line, and sinker, and it was gone. And of course, he, as being the, the fisherman he was, he said that was about 100 pounds plus, okay? Never got it in, but I had it there for a little bit. That's my fish story. We love to tell fish stories. And today, we're gonna talk about the, the greatest fish story ever told. And it happened in the book of Luke, and I'd like us to turn to the book of Luke, the fifth chapter, Luke five, and we're gonna read the first 11 verses of Luke five as we talk today about gone fishing. Okay, here we go. Luke five, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the, in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and 
followed him. We've left the area of Nazareth, which was kind of a stifling city atmosphere, and find ourselves today in a calm, serene landscape of the countryside. If you can imagine this, it's called the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee is our more familiar name. Seven miles wide and 13 miles long of pure blue. Has anybody here been to Israel and been to the Sea of Galilee? A couple of us, okay. Um, it's an amazing scene, and when you go to the Sea of Galilee, there's this pure blue, and there's, there's green rolling hills all around it, and uh, purple mountains in the distance. You can see Mount Hermon. You can see some of these other mountains in the area. It's an absolutely idyllic setting, and in this idyllic setting, there were people of need, great needs. Some were just curious. Some were hurting. Some were hungry. The passage said that the people were so eager to hear what Jesus was saying, that they crowded around him. These people, for the first time, heard what they, what they sensed deep within, that these were the words of God himself. So this crowd is pushing and straining, and you can picture Jesus at the edge of this, and finally, he's at water's edge, and he spotted two boats, now empty. The fishermen were washing their nets for, 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 their, for the next day, the next fishing trip. Every fishing trip, the equipment had to be checked out and cleaned for the next day. So Jesus got into one of the boats, Simon Peter's, and he asked him to put out a ways. Then he sat down and just kept on teaching. Then Jesus wants to go fishing. He wants to go fishing. And I want us to find out what can we learn from Jesus or about God from this story. Seven lessons from fishing. Seven lessons from fishing from this great fish story. Lesson number one. Jesus goes where the people are. Jesus goes where the people are. In other words, he fishes where the fish are. He fishes where the fish are. Most of the teachers of that day would go to the synagogues and the cathedrals and the churches, religious places of worship to teach. And Jesus did teach in the synagogues and other places. But he also went where the people were, the common everyday people. See, the thing that we understand as we look at this life of Christ, as we look at this God's plan to save the planet, he did something totally outside the box all the time. And, and he did this outside the box. And I know that we think that people need to come to church to find God. And, and a lot of people come to church and they discover a new relationship with God. They do that. Many will come to church seeking God. Many will not. There's a guy named John Wesley, and many of you know the name. John Wesley was the founder of the, the Methodist Episcopal Church, or the Episcopal Methodist Church, out of which the Wesleyan Church came from. And he did, he did something similar to what Jesus did in the 1700s. In his day, the common folk and the poor people could not go to the cathedrals to hear from God or hear, hear from God. Church was reserved for the upper class. So John Wesley went to where the people were. He did what was called field preaching. Okay, just, he went out into the fields and he began to preach to people out in the fields. And it was different. It was outside the box of that day. And the established Church of England said, in which he was a part, he said, you can't do that. You can't teach and preach and must, out there. You must do that in our church buildings. But John Wesley said, I'm going to go where the people are, where the people that need to hear the message, outside the church buildings, outside the box, out by the country, out in the fields. And he made this shift geographically. He, he went out where people were geographically. Not only did he go out to where people were geographically, he also went out where people were culturally. Culturally. 
Now, this is a huge, this is a huge deal and a huge thing. John and his brother Charles went to people on their cultural ground. In fact, Charles wrote songs and did music of the popular culture. He took common pop tunes, sung mostly in the pubs or bars, put lyrics to it that they understand. He knew the language of the people, he knew the music of the people, he knew where the people were culturally, so they did music to identify and connect with the people of the culture. They went to where the people were. You know those great hymns of the faith? The lyrics were new, the, the tunes were actually pop music. Okay? Well, in the same way God calls us, you and me, to go where the people are. And we have to ask the question, where are the people geographically? And of course, your contact with people out there, your contact, you have people that you work with at home, at school, in the gym. I seem to have more significant conversations with people in the sauna at Gold's Gym. I don't know why. It just happens that way. Everybody's kind of sitting there sweating and whatever it is. And I, this last week, um, I was in there, and there were some young guys, and they just wanted to know. They were talking theology and religion and stuff, and so they got curious as to who I was and what I did. And the minute, you know, usually, when you tell them it's a pastor, you kills conversation. But in this case, they were curious, so they started asking me questions. Of course, I had all the answers. You know how that goes. <laughs> but going where the people are, where do you connect with people? Where do you connect? Is it at work? Is it at the grocery store? Is it at the gas station? Um, how do you make connection with people geographically? Because every one of you has a different sphere of influence where you, that nobody else has. And God calls us to connect with people geographically. And then culturally. And culture is a huge issue. Uh, culture has been called the water, in, it's, it's been compared to the water in which fish swim. In other words, people are in this culture, they may be aware of it, they may not be aware of it, they just kind of move and engage in it. And whether a person was raised in kind of a Scandinavian culture, or they're raised in more of a German culture, um, in, a, in a Midwest culture, West Coast, Southern, whatever, you guys know that when you see people from different cultures, and they may be from a different country, they think differently, they act differently, they, they, there's, they may speak differently, whatever it is, but there's a certain culture, and God calls on us to connect. And there's a huge part of that where if you were raised in the church culture, there are many people that are from outside the church culture, and they don't understand. They don't understand how we speak and what our values are, etc. And so we use these Christian terms and this, this Christian language, and, and they, don't, they don't know anything. In fact, our country is becoming more and more non-Christian, so that there's a lot less what we call residual Christianity in people's lives. A lot fewer people identify themselves as Christians. Um, we find that more in the West Coast than in the Middle West. But you know people culturally that probably are not believers, they're not Christians. The question is, how do you connect with them culturally? You have to be able to speak their language and relate to them culturally. See, people have great needs, and they're hungry and thirsty. They're spiritually seeking, and we are called to meet them where they are, where they live. We have two daughters who are uh, 29 and 32, living in Los Angeles, and they, they're called to a very, very difficult mission field, and it is a mission field. They're called to the entertainment industry. Talk about an incredibly difficult context in which to live your faith and to share your faith, and they have small groups, and they have Bible studies, and they have su su support groups. They have all kinds of things that they work with, helping, pr primarily helping women navigate 
the entertainment industry, there are literally thousands of people in their 20s and 30s who have been called of God to go to Los Angeles or to New York City, the centers of the culture in this country, the center, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's movies and music, and they're there not to become stars. They are there to have an impact and make a difference on our culture. They're going where the people are that are difference makers. Going where people are to make a difference culturally. So Jesus went where the people were. The second lesson we learn from this is Jesus challenges our logic. Jesus challenges our logic. He says to Peter, hey, let's go fishing. Now, Peter was the expert fisherman. He did it for a living. He had fished his whole life, and he knew the best time for fishing was at night. The absolute worst time for fishing was this time of the morning when the sun glistened on the water and scared the fish. I mean, everybody knew that. But Jesus, well, he was a carpenter. What did he know about fishing? You know, that's probably what he said. Besides, Peter said, I, I just fished all night. I didn't catch anything. Peter was willing to let him use his boat for a pulpit to preach from, but does not want to let him use it for fishing. And you sense this resistance. He says, let's go fishing. He goes, eh, I don't know if I want to do this. The implication is, Jesus, you know about preaching. I, Peter, know about fishing. But he gave in. Now, do you ever, do you ever argue with Jesus? Does does God ever challenge your logic and your thinking? He asks you to do something illogical, and we say, God, you know, you're up there, I'm down here, I really know what needs to be done. I'm closer to the situation. You want me to do what? I, I don't care if the Bible says love my enemies, pray for my persecutors, it just doesn't make sense, I don't want to do that. I, I know you told me to deny myself, but I really do not want to deny myself. I know you said not to engage in premarital sex, but he might break up with me if I don't. You want me to stay in this marriage, but aren't I supposed to be happy? You want me to give at least a tithe or 10% of my income to, to the church? You know how much that is? By the way, if you, you can do more with the 90% left with God's blessing than the 100% without his blessing. Just a little insight. We say, God, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical challenging our logic. See, Jesus makes us think differently. There was a couple who owned a restaurant in a suburb north of Seattle called Smoky Point, and they were open seven days a week. And this couple, those of you that have, that have ever served in the restaurant business or retail business know the long hours and the, 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 the small return you get on every meal, whatever that is. They worked their tails off just trying to make a living seven days a week. And in the middle of this, God spoke to them and said, you know what, um, where's your Sabbath? Where's your Sabbath? And he challenged them and began to speak to them about closing on Sundays. And I don't want to be legalistic about this, but God spoke to them about closing on Sundays. And they said, God, that's our biggest day. How, there's no way we're, gonna, we're barely making it now. How are we going to make it if we close on Sunday? Well, they battled this for about six months. Finally, they said, okay. We'll close on Sundays. So they did. They closed on Sundays, and the other six days jumped. And they got more business and more revenue by far in those six days than they did on those previous seven. Now, it wasn't long before God began to speak to him again and said, now, I want you to give time to your family. Your kids are being shortchanged. You don't make their games. You don't do this. And you don't, you're not at no involvement. You don't have a family day. 
Didn't take them as long this time because they saw what God did when they gave up Sunday. So they closed on Saturday. And you know, and they told me this, that their business in five days far exceeded the previous six or seven day week that they had. It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. God will challenge our logic. His economy is different. It's amazing what happens when we do that. Now, God doesn't always make sense. He'll challenge our logic. We might say, God, your timing is off. You know, P- Peter said, Jesus, I-, I know you'd like to go fishing, but th- this is a bad time. Okay? Uh, how many times have you said that to God? God, this is just not a good time. Okay? It's not a good time. My- your timing is off. I was supposed to be out of debt by now. I was-, I was supposed to be married by now. I was supposed to have graduated. I was supposed to have those three kids and a dog. I was supposed to be at a different place in my life to have the house paid off, have that promotion. I was supposed to be retired. God never seems to be on my schedule of timing. Your timing is off. See, because we think our walk with God is all common sense. It's all logic. It's it, it just, it, it isn't. Jesus challenges Peter's logic and his timing, and he will challenge your timing. Number three. Number three, Jesus moves us beyond failure and doubt. The whole tone of Peter's reply to Jesus, let's go fishing, is doubt and failure. He says, Master, we worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. Failure. I don't know how many of you have ever stayed up all night and failed. How do you feel in the morning? Tired, frustrated, fatigued, loss of enthusiasm, no confidence, just doubt. Peter said, you don't know where I've been. You don't understand how I feel. Failure. I think every one of us has experienced failure. Failure. Failure produces doubt, doubt in our abilities, doubt about God, just doubt about life in general when we fail. Over 150 years ago, there's a man who lived that seemed like a failure. He seemed to be a failure. He was homely, he was awkward, he was poor. He lost his mother when he was a young boy. As a young man, he ran for public office and lost. He started a business, but because he had an incompetent business partner, his business collapsed and he was left with just debts. He tried politics again, but lost not once, but twice. He was engaged to be married, and just before his wedding, his fiancée died. Bad luck. A loser. Failure. Failure after failure, this guy experienced what, what did God do with this failure, this guy who is so much of a failure? Actually, this failure became one of the greatest leaders our country's ever known, President Abraham Lincoln, taking failure and, and turning it around. See, God, God takes failure. And if you've experienced failure, a failed relationship, a failure of parenting, failure of business, failed health, failed job, God wants to move us beyond failure and doubt. And in spite of Peter's failure, Jesus challenging his logic, Peter makes a statement that we can all learn from. He says this, look, I've been a failure. It doesn't make sense. All of this looks terrible. But because you say so, Because you say so. How many of you drop your teeth if your kids said, because you say so? (laughs) Obedience. Obedience. The fourth lesson. Obedience to Jesus brings supernatural 
results. Obedience to Jesus brings supernatural results. I have tried and failed, but because you say so, I will try it your way. Peter's own efforts are fruitless, resultless, and Jesus steps in, gives a command. Peter obeys, and wow, look at the results. So many fish, and that's begin to break. So many fish, they filled both boats and nearly sunk both of them. It's a miracle, a miracle. Let me, let me tell you something. When we obey God, submit to God, quit trying to do it on our own, God pours out his blessings more than we can ever imagine. This was an obvious supernatural miracle, an intervention by the living God. This could not be explained by regular fishing techniques. But you know what? God is just waiting, waiting for us to obey so that he can pour out his blessings on our lives. When I was 18 years old and knew everything, I was a hotshot lead trumpet player. And trumpet was a great way to gain attention. You play loud, you play high, everyone notices. And I enjoyed the attention, the adulation. It was an ego trip and everything that came with it. And God said to me one day, I want you to give me your trumpet. I want you to give me your trumpet. I said, no. I like the way it is. And we had a battle. I wrestled, and as always, God eventually won. He always does in the end. And one day I found myself kneeling beside a bed in a Dallas hotel room, my trumpet laying on this makeshift altar. And I said, okay, God, take it. From now on, every note that comes out of this trumpet is for your glory and your attention, not mine. Use it to point people to Jesus, not me. Incredibly, God was just waiting for me to obey. Then he poured out blessings that I could not imagine. Life-changing opportunities to travel and spend time traveling, using my trumpet to point people not to me but to Jesus. Everything in my life since that point, ministry, marriage, lifelong relationships, all point back and came out of that one moment of surrender in obedience to God in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas. Obedience to Jesus brings supernatural results. What are you holding back today? What part of your life are you reluctant to give to God? When we turn it over to God in obedience, he fills our net far more than we could ever, ever imagine. He's just waiting for you to just give it to him. He multiplies things. Don't hang on to it. Let it go. Lesson five, Jesus' works show who he is and who we are. In verse eight, we see a turning point in Peter's life. He moves from extreme self-confidence and pride to total humiliation. Why? How did that happen? What Jesus did was so dramatic, 
They were astonished. They were astounded. They were blown away. These guys had fished their entire lives and never seen anything like this. This was going to be the greatest fish story of all times. And they recognized this as something only God could have done. Only God could do this. So Peter fell at Jesus' feet. There's something that happens when we see God in his glory and his power. And I don't think we can have it in front of us all the time or we'd probably die. But when God reveals his incredible glory, his power and strength, his majesty, who he is, and we begin to see the difference and the contrast between who he is and who we are, the only thing we can do is fall flat on our face and worship God. God knows how we are as humans. When we realize who God is and who we are, all we can do is worship. We can also move into something called fear. Fear. Now, fear of God is not a bad thing as long as it's a fear of awe and wonder and worship. Fear of this almighty, powerful God is not a negative fear. But the next part is that with Jesus, we need not fear. In verse 10, it says, Jesus says, do not be afraid, do not fear, or stop being fearful. It's not, don't get scared, it's calming an existing fear. I'm sure that Peter was afraid of where all this was heading. I think he had just an inkling of something was going to happen here. That this Jesus was going to ask him for something. And it was going to take commitment, it was going to take sacrifice. It actually eventually was going to cost him his life. Have you ever experienced that kind of fear? Afraid to give up control to God? Afraid of where he's going to lead you? Afraid to surrender because you're afraid of what he's going to ask of you? And we all like to be in control. It's either he or us. That's not very good grammar. It's either he or me. He's either in control or I'm in control. You're in control or he's in control. Who is it? Coming to Jesus means giving up control of our lives to his leadership. And it requires faith and trust. And for most of us, there's a one-time occurrence of that decision to accept God's leadership and control of our lives. But there's also that daily struggle needing to be renewed every day because we like to take control back again. It's a constant battle. Who's in charge? God or me. Trust God. Let go. Give him control. Stop being afraid, Jesus says. And finally, follow Jesus and you will catch people. You will catch people. Simon Peter and the rest of the followers of Jesus were about to embark on the most exciting journey imaginable. They were going to be part of God's plan to change the planet. That's your role, too. You are part of God's plan to change the planet. They left everything and followed Jesus. They spent the rest of their lives catching people. Now, the word catch is from the Greek word zagreo, which means to catch alive. It's not, it's not catching, it's not uh, shooting a deer uh, dead, it's not catching a fish and eating them. This word zagreo means to catch alive. And the second dimension of this word to catch, the grail, is 
it's future linear action, so it means it's ongoing action. So it means it's catching people and keeping on catching people. It's a permanent lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus and capturing people. People are captured or captivated by other people that have Jesus in their life. I don't know if anybody's ever said to you, there's something different about you, what is it? There's something captivating. That people are, are desperate to see something different, something new, something supernatural, something positive. The Holy Spirit of God is in each one of us if we've become a Christian. Ask God, Lord, let that Holy Spirit shine through me so people are captivated and drawn to me. You have people in your life that will be drawn to you. They won't know what it is. All you can say is, it's Jesus in me captivating them. Catch people, not entrapped but set free. Bruce Larson says, while there are an infinite variety of things we're called from, we are all called to the same thing. We are called to go out and take people alive. So where are you today? Maybe you're here and for the first time you realize who Jesus is and want to join Peter in worshiping him and submitting to his leadership. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize for the first time you've been trying to do everything on your own or hanging on to everything. And Jesus is calling you to move forward, to give it up. Jesus is more important than anything else in our lives. Job, career, family, possessions. Your mission, should you decide to accept it, catch people. Let's go fishing. Father, we thank you that you've given us this great fish story, a great illustration of your power and the transformative nature of, of, of this incident and how it totally changed Peter and how you then used Peter and the disciples and called them and they moved into engaging in the mission that you came to accomplish that was going to change and transform the entire planet. And Father, I pray that you would help us understand that we're the extension of that. We are the, the result of that is us. But we are here to carry on that mission, that journey, that, that, that mission to catch people. And Father, I pray that as we engage in that, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Father, you know us intimately. And you care about every detail of our lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that you would speak to each one of our hearts, transform each of our hearts today. Because you know us and you have a purpose for each one of us. And we thank you in Jesus' name.